This is the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast. We are your study buddies for neonatology topics. I'm Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. Welcome. Hello. What, you want me to open the show? You got to open well, the show. I was going to see what was going to break the air. <laughs> I'm very comfortable with silence. You know that. <laughs> Are you, though? <laughs> I am with families, not so much in uh, my, my social and personal <laughs> life, I guess. Welcome back, everybody, to the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. It is Thursday. We are doing um, infectious disease. And <clears throat> I think today we're going to step into some individual ideologic agents, some, some, some individual bacteria. So that's quite fun. Let me just turn on the light on my desk because it's getting dark outside. Okay. All right. Do you want me to start? Mm-hmm. All right. So the first bug we're going to talk about is GBS, which we talked about in the context of early onset sepsis and late onset sepsis. But let's talk about GBS um, independently. So it's a gram-positive diplococci in chains uh, found most commonly in the GI tract then second in the um, in uh, the vaginal area then cervical area it is also present in unpasteurized milk um, and important to know that uh, vaginal colonization vaginal colonization increases with age it may be transient, and, though, and thus maternal cultures are not 100% uh, predictive of status at delivery, depending on when you are doing the culture. There's a greater risk of neonatal infection with GBS if the baby is born prematurely, if there is prolonged rupture of membrane, if we have intrapartum fever or chorioamnionitis, and if there is maternal GBS bacteriuria. GBS is often acquired um, through colonization during passage through the vaginal canal or ascending after rupture of membrane. It is not acquired by the transplacental route. As we mentioned earlier, transplacental route, most commonly viruses. Um, 8 to 28% of all pregnant women are GBS positive. Half of the infant with GBS positive mothers are colonized. And of those, 1% to 2% of these infants are infected. Um, there's two types of GBS uh, disease. You could have early onset disease, which presents in the form of either sepsis in 25 to 40% of cases, pneumonia in 35 to 55% of cases, and meningitis in 5 to 10% of cases. Many serotypes um, uh, can be uh, identified because it is often uh, originating from the, the from the vaginal flora. However, serotype three, which we reviewed in one of your questions, I think it was Monday, is most likely. In terms of late onset GBS disease, which happens after seven days of life, meningitis actually happens more commonly in thirty to forty percent of cases. Sepsis is the most common presentation, seventy percent of cases, and. Um, Half of the um, infants will uh, will have neurological sequelae 
They may have osteomyelitis, septic arthritis, cellulitis as well, or other forms in which TBS can present. Uh, serotype 3 um, is the majority, and it presents typically uh, 20, at uh, 24 days of life, and there's no, um, no increase in preterm infants. There's lower mortality compared to early onset disease. Um, and the important thing is that as we're discussing, obviously, something that we've discussed on the podcast in the GBS series, where with Dr. Popolo, where we talk about intrapartum antibiotic prophylaxis, that prophylactic initiative really has had no effect on the incidence of late onset GBS. To prevent neonatal colonization, um, pregnant mothers are screened at about 35 to 37 weeks. And intrapartum antibiotic prophylaxis is indicated if a mother has had a previous infant with GBS disease, if there's GBS bacteria GBS bacteriuria during the current pregnancy, if um, there's positive GBS screening culture during pregnancy, if there's an unknown GBS status and delivery is happening at less than 37 weeks of gestation, rupture of membrane for more than 18 hours, or intrapartum maternal fever of more than 100.4. Um, the treatment of neonates who are born, oh, sorry, the treatment of neonates who are born to GBS positive mother, um, obviously I would refer to um, the latest GBS guidelines. Um, and obviously one of the most commonly used methods of screening and treating is based on the GBS sepsis risk calculator. But there is um, a dedicated approach to the management of, um, of infants with, with GBS. And um, if I, if I can pull this up quickly, um, because I have it here, right? We have, um, we have three options. Let me see. Do I have it? Maybe I don't have it actually. Oh, there it is. So we have, right? So you do have the categor categorical risk assessment where basically it's based on signs of clinical illness, whether there's maternal uh, fever, um, whether there's intrapartum prophylaxis, etc. Then you have the sepsis calculator, and then you have the third option, which is enhanced observation, where um, basically any signs of clinical illness leads to blood culture and empiric antibiotics. And if there's no signs of clinical illness, depending on um, the presentation of the mother with fever or the presence or uh, the indication or not of GBS intrapartum prophylaxis, there's a possibility to either having routine newborn care or serial physical exams with um, uh, blood cultures and antibiotics and so on. So um, there's different options now to approach infants with GBS. There's no need for isolation of any of these infants and mortality in the early disease is relatively high, five to 10% compared to late disease where it's two to 6%. Um, all right. The next, the next one that I have here is Listeria monocytogenes. I'm not exactly sure why they're in a table adjacent to one another. I I'm not think sure why they do that. Just because they're so common. <laughs> Though, yes. I mean, listeria is less common than, say, E. coli, yeah. we said, for early onset sepsis. So um, listeria monocytogenes is a gram-positive rod, right? Um, and it causes, in severe cases, this granulomatous rash. And the rash actually um, is quite impressive. It, it looks a little bit like 
e-tox, but it's 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 quite impressive. So uh, you should Google that. And I have I have one other question. I'm going to show this to Daphne actually, since we are. Look at that. That was me. That was really not uh, radio uh, appropriate stuff to do to show a picture to my co-host, but <laughs> because anyway. nobody else can see it. Nobody else. Everybody's like nobody left else out of can the... see it. <laughs> um, it is associated but with. But you placenta. know, they do. I was going to say they do show pictures sometimes on the boards, and yeah. I think this would be a totally reasonable mm -hmm. uh, rash to show. Yeah, absolutely. The typical placental pathology is that it shows uh, placental microabscesses. So that should be a little buzzword. And um, it is associated with a specific list of foods that could be part of maternal diet that includes unpasteurized milk, uncooked meat, and unwashed raw vegetables. Um, you also have soft cheeses, deli meat, and it, it does increase the risk of stillbirth, preterm delivery, and neonatal illness. Now, how does um, there's there's different forms obviously of listeria disease. You have early onset, late onset. The early onset disease is usually acquired most commonly through the transplacental route. And another form is through the ingestion or aspiration of infected amniotic fluid. And I'm not going to say anything, actually. I'm going to skip the comment I was about to make. Um, and then in the context of late onset disease, um, we can see that the, um, the way it is acquired is usually from uh, colonized uh, mothers at the time of delivery or environmentally, like hospital acquired. And that's usually the most common, the, the less um, common form. So not exactly sure what we mean by that, to be honest. So a baby that's colon that's that's acquires the disease from mom around the time of delivery can eventually develop late onset disease. In any case, right. the actual disease itself is broken down into early onset versus late onset. Early onset in the first seven days. The most common serotypes are serotype one A and one B. It presents like a sepsis and pneumonia, often with chocolate-colored or meconium-like staining of the amniotic fluid that is underlined and is a serious buzzword for the boys. You'll have I think this... this, yeah, this might be like, you know, a preterm baby who you would not expect to see meconium, right? That would mm -hmm. be uncommon, but they will, they will say that and that should make you think listeria. Yeah. They have this small papular rash, um, which shows granuloma on, histo on histology and they have um, babies who are born preterm are at an increased risk. And um, interestingly enough, is that unlike other infections that a mother could catch during pregnancy, 65% of mothers will develop symptoms of listeria during pregnancy. And these will be like GI symptoms, like flu-like flu -like illness, like malaise, fever. It's not really specific, but the mother will be symptomatic. And then you could have late onset disease. And in that case, the most common serotype is serotype 4B. Remember, in the early onset, it was 1A1B. In the late onset, we are saying it's 4B. And um, the presentation is usually meningitis. And they may have increased CSF mononuclear cells, um, even though the overall symptoms of the baby could be milder. 
So quite, a, quite an interesting disease where early onset, you'll have sepsis slash pneumonia, late onset presents usually as meningitis. The treatment is with ampicillin and an aminoglycoside for 14 days, 21 days if you're dealing with meningitis. Brain imaging is suggested to assess for abscess toward the end of treatment course. Um, longer treatment may be needed if you actually do see, um, if you do see uh, uh, an abscess. Um, no isolation is needed, um, standard precautions only. Um, those cases need to be reported to local health departments in the U.S. The mortality is quite high. Early onset disease is 25% and 15% in the case of late onset disease. Um, another interesting point that I wrote in my note here, um, we mentioned that the treatment should be with ampicillin and an aminoglycoside. None of the cephalosporins cover for listeria. And I'm assuming I had like a, a review question somewhere uh, that made me write this down. But I think that's an important one because often we see that the aminoglycoside can be substituted for cephalosporin. Mm -hmm. In this case, none of the cephalosporins cover for listeria. So, interesting. Very well. All right, buddy, your turn. Yes. Um, I am going to we, – we do not have the time to do syphilis. That is, oh, I think, can, a, we, yeah. an episode all in of itself. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm going to move on to Neisseria and chlamydia, which we just spoke about. Uh, so we'll do a little recap, but tell That's you right. all the other things that happen. So Neisseria gonorrhea is a gram-negative intracellular diplococci in pairs that can lead to gonococcal infection. Um, they will, you know, I think it's reasonable to know the characteristics of the bacteria. So again, gram-negative intracellular diplococci in pairs. Um, transmission to the neonate typically occurs via vertical transmission. So the vaginal secretions, secretions of an infected pregnant woman at delivery, um, and it can also um, be transmitted through breast milk less commonly. Clinically, there uh, presents with neonatal conjunctivitis, also called gonococcal ophthalmic neonatorum. Like we said before, typically two to five days after birth, profuse bilateral purulent discharge, and it may lead to corneal ulcerations if untreated. And as a reminder, this is why we use um, uh, the erythromy erythromycin prophylaxis um, uh, to try to prevent gonococcal infection. Um, and it is treated with cephalosporins. Uh, let's see. Can also have scalp abscesses. Uh, these typically occur at the site of fetal scalp monitors. And systemic findings include arthritis, very difficult to evaluate in a neonate, but pneumonia, sepsis, osteomyelitis, and meningitis. Um, unfortunately, gonorrhea in pregnant women is typically asymptomatic. They may have vaginal discharge or dysuria, but not always. You diagnose it um, with Graham stain and culture using the Thayer Martin growth medium. And I have a note here that you need to plate it rapidly for adequate growth. So what's the management? Gonococcal conjunctivitis without dissemination requires emergent and, treatment. And, and that, I mean, I'm sorry to say this because you mentioned this. And if you're listening, be like, oh, come on, like, why? Right? Why would that even be relevant? Right? Because you could say. You mean which medium? The rapid plating. Oh, yeah. But I think the way it's funny because I wrote this, I highlighted this in my notes as well. Mm. And I think this could be a question where a baby is, is they tell you that a kid has gonorrhea, but that his culture it's was negative. actually negative. Yeah. And in the choices, they'll say, what could have caused this? And you could say, well, delayed plating of the, delayed plating of the sample. And that's, that's a question. Easy. 
Yeah, and I mean, I think that's clinically relevant. If you're in a place that doesn't run all of their labs, right, in-house, and you got to send this thing out, it sits in the box for two hours, then it goes across the city. So and, for the people who may, have, who may have already guessed uh, our, lab our lab are not, <laughs> I think our lab has like a picture of Daphna in their office and they throw darts because Daphna is on their case. Like she has... Every, every <laughs> I'm just saying it's hypothetical that you <laughs> might have a lab that sends out a lot of stuff and it sits for a while is what I'm saying. I'm saying <laughs> I'm not sure we could diagnose Scott Cockle. Oh man. It's funny. <laughs> uh but a gram stain would be helpful. Somebody could look at that right away. <laughs> uh -huh. <laughs> but yes, okay, fine. Yes, I I, I occasionally am disgruntled. <laughs> but you're not i mean it's not that you're disgruntled it's that you set high expectations for everyone in the team for everyone yeah and including and, including the lab and the team and they may not the consider lab. themselves part of our team yet but you that's make fair touche <laughs> <laughs> touche oh man oh gosh okay it's funny when, you, when i get report from daphna and i get there and she's on the phone with lab and she's like well couldn't you do and i'm like oh boy <laughs> Well, couldn't you I'm run always the on, I'm always on the phone with somebody when you're walking in the door, I feel like. Yeah. My end but of the day. Like, why didn't I get these your... results back yet? <laughs> yeah, but I'm all very right. happy to follow after you because all my genetic tests are all resulted. They're all in the, in the thing. It's so nice. Oh, don't get me started on genetic testing. <laughs> <laughs> I've now spoken with almost all the clinical geneticists at LabCorp and... Uh, <laughs> And VJ, oh, you name it. Okay. Yeah. Anyways, okay. Gonococcal conjunctivitis requires emergent treatment with one dose of ceftriaxone, intravenous or intramuscular. This is an emergency because it can rapidly progress to corneal ulceration and/or perforation. I think we've driven that point home. <laughs> and you would uh, continue antibiotics until evaluation for disseminated disease is complete. Now, gonococcal uh, disseminated disease requires treatment with ceftriaxone, intravenous or intramuscular, um, uh, or you can use cefotaxime if there's hyperbilirubinemia uh, because there's a high chance of penicillin resistance. And the length of treatment for, is, is for seven days unless there's meningitis, in which case the, you would continue the course for 10 to 14 days. There's also a very high co-infection rate with chlamydia. So you would evaluate for chlamydia and consider adding erythromycin. Uh, there's also an association with syphilis and HIV. And one of the other things you should do is ensure that the mother is treated and that the partner is treated because there's frequently uh, reinfections. Uh, mm -hmm. Standard precautions for infection control, even in the face of conjunctivitis. Can we prevent it? We've talked about this. We use the 0.5% erythromycin ophthalmic ointment, ideal if applied less than one hour of age. And it does decrease the incidence of gonococcal conjunctivitis from 10%. That's a lot, 10% to 0.5%. So that's why we do wow. it for every baby. But it does not completely prevent chlamydial infections. Um, and this is why, because chlamydia typically has nasopharyngeal colonization. And so the erythromycin ointment just doesn't get there. If an asymptomatic infant is born to a mother with untreated gonococcal infection, um, there is precedent for a one dose of ceftriaxone. Okay, now to chlamydia. Uh, this is an obligate intracellular bacteria that was a 
buzzword question in med school and it's still a buzzword question on the board. So it's something to remember. There are 18 serotypes. 50% of infants born by vaginal delivery to chlamydia infected mothers will become infected. Um, and transmission uh, can still occur um, even with intact membranes. Um, the conjunctivitis is the, so like we said, chlamydia is the most common cause of conjunctivitis in the first month of age. And it's also the most common neonatal manifestation of chlamydia, 25 to 50%. It's typically bilateral. It occurs five to 14 days post-delivery, but it can be seen earlier if there's premature rupture of membranes, again, because of um, kind of a bigger uh, lead time from the infection. Mm -hmm. It's initially watery discharge that becomes purulent, may also be accompanied by swollen eyelids and red thickened conjunctiva. I think this is important. They like to test on this and it is clinically relevant because sometimes we, you got to think about it to treat it. So chlamydia pneumonia. So five to 30% of patients with chlamydia will develop chlamydia pneumonia. It presents at two to 19 weeks after birth. So these are babies who maybe are doing well, and then they have all these respiratory changes. Staccato cough, nasopharyngitis, increased respiratory distress, otitis media. It's typically a febrile, but on x-ray, you might see hyperinflated lungs with bilateral infiltrates. And um, up to 70% have evidence of eosinophilia. So don't ignore those eosinophils. And half of those babies already had a history of chlamydia conjunctivitis. So if you have chlamydia conjunctivitis, you have you should be on the watch for chlamydia pneumonia. Um, definitely something good in terms of anticipatory guidance for parents. Culture with the GM sustain. Did I get it right? Sure. <laughs> I'm going to give it to you. The I forgot already. <laughs> the conjunctival scrapings. Um, neonates with pneumonia may have increased chlamydia-specific IgM levels, um, and this is important to remember, it is not detectable by Bram stain because it's an obligate intracellular bacteria. So chlamydia conjunctivitis or pneumonia is treated with oral erythromycin um, or ethyl succinate times 14 days. Up to 20% of patients require a second course of treatment. Of note, um, there is an association between oral erythromycin and hypertrophic pyloric stenosis reported in infants less than six weeks of age, especially if less than two weeks of age, which is the most common time for chlamydia conjunctivitis to present. Um, but because of unknown risk of other macrolides, the AAP currently still recommends erythromycin for chlamydial infections in neonates, and that, again, there should be good anticipatory guidance uh, about this potential risk. Uh, you do need to treat the parents of infected neonates, and infants born to women with known but untreated chlamydial infections are at high risk of acquiring an infection. But because efficacy of prophylaxis is unknown, treatment is not indicated until the infant develops clinical signs of infection. This is also different than uh, gonococcal, where if you had an asymptomatic infant born to a mother with untreated gonococcal infection, you would give one dose of ceftriaxone. This is not the case in the chlamydial um, exposure. Um, okay, standard precautions for infection control. And what do we do for prevention? So we do still theoretically give the erythromycin ophthalmic ointment for all neonates, but this does not prevent neonatal chlamydial conjunctivitis. It will prevent gonococcal ophthalmia because colonization of the nasopharynx can still occur. Okay. Okay. Do we have time for a question? I have a question, question for no? you. Yeah. Go ahead. 
Um, this is maternal fetal medicine. Question 77. A primogravida woman has a benign prenatal course until three days ago when she presents with mild abdominal pain and loss of clear fluid. At that time, 29 and two-seventh weeks gestation, she's diagnosed with short cervix and preterm premature rupture of membranes. Admitted to the hospital for fetal heart rate and uterine activity monitoring and treated with betamethasone and mag sulfate. Additionally, a culture for group B strep was sent and she was started on IV ampicillin and erythromycin. Unfortunately, labor progresses and she delivers early. What is the role of antibiotic treatment in preterm labor? We did not review this. Um, A, antibiotic administration is appropriate in the setting of preterm premature rupture of membranes. B, antibiotics are only beneficial if the pregnant woman is positive for GBS. C, antibiotics are only beneficial if there has been documented persistent uterine contractions. D, antibiotics can prevent cervical dilatation. E, antibiotics can prolong the pregnancy only if the membranes are intact. Um, we're looking for the true statement. Yeah. I would say A. Yes, that's right. Thankfully, that was <laughs> antibiotic administration is appropriate in the setting of preterm premature rupture of membranes. Absolutely, yes. So preterm birth, as we know, is a major factor contributing to neonatal morbidity and mortality. It can occur with intact membranes or after preterm premature rupture of membranes. Management with intact membranes is challenging because it's difficult to predict which woman will eventually give birth preterm. In cases where the fetus would clearly benefit from prolonging the pregnancy, treatment to stop the preterm labor is initiated. Tocolytics mm. have been shown to be effective, and this time window is also used to administer antenatal steroids, MAG, and if necessary, transport uh, the pregnant person to a hospital equipped for premature infants. Although ascending bacterial infections are one of the most important causes of preterm labor, a meta-analysis of randomized clinical trials has shown that antibiotic treatment is ineffective in prolonging pregnancies. Furthermore, antibiotic therapy has not been shown to be effective in preventing neonatal sepsis or respiratory distress. Okay, so that's for preterm labor. Oh. But in contrast, antibiotic therapy has been beneficial for women with premature preterm rupture of membranes. If the clinical presentation and gestational age permits expectant management, antibiotics are used both to prolong pregnancy and to reduce infant mortality and morbidity. I could see that being a question about antibiotics. Uh, multiple antibiotic regimens have been used and have shown to have benefit. Uh, the most recent ACOG practice bulletin recommends to treat women with PPROM who are less than 34 and 07 weeks gestation. Um, and are being managed expectantly with a seven-day course of IV AMP and erythromycin followed by oral amoxicillin and erythromycin. In addition, women with PPROM who are GBS carriers should be given intrapartum GBS prophylaxis as a separate, regardless of, of the above-mentioned antibiotic course. Okay. Sounds good. See you tomorrow. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We would love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to Daphna and I via email by sending your messages to nicupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Twitter at NICUPodcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.